Welcome to the show. You're here. I'm here. That literally means everyone important is here. If you're not here and you're not listening, then you're just not important. That's just how it goes. Listen, when the world comes to an end and we round all the important people up on a spaceship, we're going to ask a few questions. Are you educated? Um, you know, do you have kids? We're going to ask the important things. We're going to try to get the, do you have good resistance to illnesses? Are you going to die if you get a cold? We're going to try to sort it out, get the best humans. But I'm telling you that one of the questions that's going to be asked is, did you listen to the state of the universe episode number 61? And if you say no, then you ain't getting on the ship. You're not getting on the ship, okay? You're gonna stay here on the earth, the sun's gonna turn into a red giant star, and you're gonna die, and you're gonna get crispy, and you're gonna, you know. So thank you for tuning in to episode 61 of the State of the Universe. I appreciate you being here. Do you remember in 2013, the the meteorite that struck in Russia, in, in Chelyabinsk? Get a better name. Hey Russia, here's an idea. Get cities that have better names. You know, Sacramento, that's a nice one. Rochester, how's that? New York City. They have city in the name of the city. And what do you guys come up with? Chelyabinsk? No, shut it down. It's no wonder you got hit with a meteorite. Anyway, it was one of the biggest news stories of 2013, and for good reason. It is a fascinating story. It's the biggest meteor in more than a century to hit the planet. This one crashed in Russia. A thousand people were injured from shards of flying glass and debris. Tonight here, we have learned there was no warning. That's an incredible story, okay? And that was a big meteorite. It was the biggest fireball that entered the atmosphere in almost a century, okay? Now, an important question is why? Why are these things hitting the earth? Can we predict them? As you might've heard the news anchor say there, well, by the way, why do all news anchors talk identically? Turns out there's actually science there. Turns out there's a reason they talk the way they do. So look into that if you want, but why it turns out and i'm joined by the great dr sarah masri dr sarah masri i'm getting a lot of canadians on because i like canada it's one of my favorite places okay i was in i was in canada for maybe three hours my whole life and i liked every second of it they have dr sarah masri she is a planetary scientist a science educator an expert in this field and her recent research suggested something very interesting the rate of impacts on the earth have increased by a factor of two to three over the past 250 million years. So we talked to her, what does that mean for humans? What does that mean for the history of the earth? What does that mean for mass extinction events? Okay, could they have been caused by this uptick in impacts that we see here on the earth? And more importantly, how do you even learn that? Well, it turns out that the way you learn it has a bunch to do with the moon. It has a bunch to do with studying the moon. Why the moon? Why is the moon important? What is different about the moon and the earth? Orth? Orth? The orth? Don't say words wrong, Brandon. It's just stop it. Okay, you sound like a Russian. Speaking of the moon, though, you already know this. You, you already know. I don't have to tell you. We're going back to the moon. And when I say we, I mean America. Do I mean other countries? Sure, they'll join in. Canada will have a big role in the eventual lunar gateway. But we're going back to the moon. The directive I'm signing today will refocus America's space program on human exploration and discovery. It marks an important step in returning American astronauts to the moon for the first time since 1972 for long-term exploration and use. This time, we will not only plant our flag and leave our footprint, 
We will establish a foundation for an eventual mission to Mars. <laughs> I love how Donald says Mars. My favorite thing is how Donald says Mars. I, I wish I was Mike Pence because I would talk to Donald all day about Mars. I would talk to Donald. All, I'd be like, hey, Donald, where where are we going after we go to the moon? If This would be if me, me if I was Mike Pence. Donald, where are we going after the moon? Mars. I'd be like, hey, I'd look up all the Mars facts. I'd walk in. I'd be Mike Pence. Donald, where's what 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 planet is considered the red planet? Mars. That's what I would do. Donald, where's the largest volcano in the solar system found? Mars. Donald, which planet has two moons? Mars. I would love it. I would do it all day. I would do it all day. If I was Mike Pence, my vice presidential duties, if that's even a thing, I don't think it is, would just be asking Donald questions that I know he would know the answer to and that he would answer Mars. But we're going back, and there's a reason I bring it up. And the reason I bring it up has nothing to do, actually, with the fact that we're going back. It has to do with something that Donald said in the exact same speech. Something he said that went unnoticed. But it's very important for the conversation that I have with Sarah today. This is a giant step toward that inspiring future and toward reclaiming America's proud destiny in space. And space has so much to do with so many other applications, including a military application. Now, I want you to notice something. The thing I want you to notice is that he says it has so many applications, including a military application. Here's what you need to know. If you watch the video of him doing this press conference, you would know that this actually wasn't scripted. He's reading off of a script and he stops when he says that. He says it has so many applications. And in fact, you can even tell that it's not scripted by the words he uses, okay? He goes from mildly intelligent Donnie down to normal Donnie, which is like subpar intelligence Donnie. Now listen, everyone knows I'm not anti-Donald Trump. I'm not anti any political candidate. I'm a fence sitter. I say it every episode. I have to, or else people don't even listen to the episode and they just yell at me about politics. The point is, Donnie says something that's very important and actually quite intelligent, and it's that space does help in so many other applications. And that's why another thing that Sarah is an expert on, okay? She's the lead in an effort that aims to address this very thing. It's called Space Matters. And we talk at length about Space Matters because there's something that happens over the past, say, 40, 50 years. Funding for NASA since the 1960s has decreased a ton, an absolute ton. It increased for a little bit in the 1990s, but since then it has plummeted, okay? We are talking about incredible lows for NASA funding. The CSA, the Canadian Space Agency, is also decreasing in funding from year to year to year to year. I believe, and Sarah, we talk about this at length, I'm not saying this is Sarah's belief, but I believe it is due to a misunderstanding about the role that space exploration plays in society. She educates us. Am I right? Am I wrong? How do we address it? She's trying to address it with Space Matters and convince people in Canada, from young to old to middle class to poor, everyone that space indeed matters and that there's a lot that you use every single day and we talk about some of those things some of the things you might not know of shoes certain shoes okay you ever go running in your nikes those nikes the technology behind them may have very well come out of space exploration insulation space exploration scratch-free lenses space exploration so it's everywhere we talk about that how do we educate how does she educate and we talk about a bunch more an endless supply of stuff. I hope you enjoy the interview. I hope you enjoy the episode. Please rate and review the podcast on Apple... Apple Podcast? Yes, Apple Podcast. Five stars. Give it five stars. Subscribe on YouTube. 
go to the website, thestateoftheuniverse.com, and sign up for the mailing list, okay? We now have a mailing list. Please sign up. Some of you signed up already. You just saw it. I don't know. Serendipity. You went on the website. You saw, oh, enter my email address. Go do that. So we can tell you when new episodes are dropping and also so you can win prizes. Do you guys want to win books from the from the authors that come on the podcast? Do you want to win different, you know, different sorts of things that we end up giving away? We do a lot of that sort of stuff. Whenever we have an author come on here, we give their book away. We give several copies away. The mailing list is the place to go. If you want to win it, go on stateoftheuniverse.com, sign up for that. Also, Patreon, PayPal, support the show on either of those. Please, thank you. I love you if you do. And if you're interested in learning more about Sarah, links below in the description for you to go check out the various things that she is involved in. I thank you for being here and enjoy the episode. Love y'all. The moon. Sarah, the moon. The moon. Listen, I am into black holes. I study black holes. I study neutron stars. There was no moment in my life where I was like, man, I really want to study black holes and neutron stars. I don't know how it happened. I don't know how I stumbled into it. They interest me. They, but I couldn't tell you why they interest me. I couldn't tell you, like, there's some, like, oh, wow, um, there was some discovery, and it made me realize I have this profound interest in neutron stars and black holes. Why are you interested in the moon? Was there some, like, moment in your life where you're like, oh, damn, the moon. That's the thing I want to study. No, I think I think my, my story is very similar to yours. So I don't know when I became interested in the moon. I always say it was sort of like, you know, for my master's studies, I was studying asteroids. And then for my PhD, I started working on the moon. And it was more because, you know, my PhD supervisor was working on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then people started asking me, well, why the moon? Why the moon? And I'm like, okay, I got to come up with a brilliant answer for it. Um, I'm still looking for that answer. But then, you know, the moon is our closest neighbor. And I feel like it's if you talk to anybody about it, they sort of have a special connection with the moon like you can't have a connection with like neutron stars or black holes no offense no no you can't you look up and you see it every night like everybody's looked up and seen the moon you know either like you know the full moon the crescent moon so it's our closest neighbor i will say that i have a connection with neutron stars but it's one of hatred hatred of their inability to be modeled with computers hatred okay but you know that's flourishing one day maybe i'll find a love with them but yeah when i was a kid i would always look at the moon and i would always think it was following me when it drove in the car do you know what i mean have you had this yeah you're like oh it's still there nope oh turning coming with us yes and people would tell me that there was a man on the moon and i could never find it i'm still never find it how about the rabbit have you seen the rabbit no the rabbit on the moon yeah some say it looks like a rabbit really Mm-hmm. Mm. See, I've done a lot of observing, like throughout um, my undergrad, I would always do like observing with with the college and stuff, and invite the public and show them how to use a telescope and look at the moon. And I've never seen any of the features that people say they see on the moon. Never. No. Um, well, maybe that's like a when you become a, a astrophysicist or an astronomer, you know, you start to look at things maybe more intently than like broad strokes. You start to look at craters, and you start to look at you know, the the side, the shadow, you start to look at all the cool features and you stop looking at like the big picture. I don't know, maybe. maybe. But anyway, so you get interested in the moon when you're a kid, naturally, like everyone gets interested in the moon. Um, July, July was the 50th anniversary of the Apollo missions mm-hmm. that put people on the moon for the first time. Um, was that like a sad moment for you? It was kind of a sad moment for me to think like, man, we did this thing 50 years ago. And this is a thing I'm really interested in. And for whatever reason, 50 years later, we haven't been back. 
I guess that was a bittersweet time in a way. I was actually at the Museum of Flight in Seattle for the celebrations, and um, they had tried to recreate what it was like 50 years ago. They had like this huge screen, but they had turned it into one of these old school TVs, mm. and you had so many people huddled around trying to watch it, like they were showing the landing again. And like I had goosebumps, and everyone was just staring at this tiny TV, and I'm like, you know, I'm still like – it's been 50 years and in my lifetime, I haven't seen anything like that where everyone's like pinned to their TVs trying to see something, you know, that humanity's done for the first time or like to land on the moon. Like for me, it was it was very exciting to relive it uh, or like to live it for the first time, I guess, but for people to relive it. And I'm like, uh-huh. oh, I really wish, you know, why haven't we gone back? And a lot of people are like, oh, well, you know, we've been there. Why should we go back? And I'm always like, it's not even going back. It's like, going there to move forward yeah. from the moon. Um, so yeah, it was bittersweet. I'm like, we look, look at what we've done. Like we clearly have the ability to do this. Um, but yeah, it, it is a little bit sad that we haven't done it in almost 50 years. Yeah, I was going to bring that up to you, actually. I was going to, um, wait, I forget the point I was even going to make. Jeez, what did you just say? Um, going forward from the moon and not like going back yes, to the moon? Yes, that's the point. The point is, do you get upset when people say the moon is boring? Very, very upset. Yes, that was my question. Is that a, like a pet peeve for you? Um, I mean, I, I get it because on the scale of look at like how many exciting things we have to explore mm-hmm. and how many things we can go out there and do. Um, but I think what a lot of people don't realize is like all the questions that we still don't have answers to about our closest neighbor. Like, yes, we, we're still not 100 percent sure how it formed. Uh, we're still not 100% sure why the near side and the far side look different. Uh, we still don't know exactly like how often it got bombarded, which would tell us how often we got bombarded mm-hmm. by stuff when the Earth was forming. So there's so many unknowns. And I guess if I'm in like my little hole of like ex- like studying the moon, to me, it's like we, ha- we have to go there again. It's not boring. But I can understand that there's so many other shiny and exciting things out there that mm-hmm. people want to go and explore. So I can't get too mad. And I mean, yeah. if we had infinite amount of money to explore everything, then, you know, we should, let's go to all yes, of them. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, you know, I, I understand, I'm like you, I understand why someone would say the moon is boring, but, but, you know, I also agree with your, your statement. It was an important statement. And in that, why would we go to the moon? We've already been there. Well, the, the important point is that have we really been there? Like, yes, we've been not like conspiracy theory wise, but like, <laughs> have we really explored it is the question. Right. Like it's it's an interesting point. Like we need to actually spend time there and and learn about it and and develop, you know, an an entire base to actually study. You know, there's certain things like about the the geology of the moon that I'm not even maybe you can correct me on this that I'm not even sure we understand. And and understanding the geology of the moon is incredibly important for understanding the formation of the moon and its potential, you know, formation that that also involves things like cataclysmic. Um, impacts to the earth so there's so much stuff that the moon can help us unlock about the earth's past and that's why you're here after all because you did exactly that right you pioneered maybe pioneered is not the right word but you were involved in studies that that analyzed cratering on the moon Mm -hmm. okay and can you talk about how you even study a crater on the moon because when i picture study crater on the moon i picture a guy who goes to the moon or a woman i don't mean a guy i just mean a person I should I should paraphrase I should clarify <laughs> I need to be careful um a person that goes to the moon 
okay? And and is like digging around in the crater and getting minerals and, and doing all these sorts of studies. Um, so how do you st- – obviously you don't do that. How do you study the moon? Yeah, um, like you said, the best way actually is to go to the moon and bring rocks from that crater so that we can take it to our labs and like figure out how old that rock is, which would tell us when that crater formed, which would tell us when the moon got hit by an object at that point. Uh, but that's obviously very difficult to do. Um, the traditional method for studying craters, I guess for me, uh, it was more of an interest in trying to figure out how old those craters are. Mm-hmm. rather than um, anything else about them. Traditional methods, they start to count superimposed craters around right. a giant crater. So they count how many other craters are around that area. Um, and from there, the more craters in one area, the older that surface or that crater must be. Uh, I see. But so, as you can, yeah. so like, you know, one of the things that comes to mind is if you have a big crater and you have mm-hmm. smaller impacts inside the big crater, then you know that the smaller impacts inside the big crater happened after the big crater was formed. Exactly. Right? Okay. Yeah. And you yeah, build and up it, from there, just like ge- just like a geologist would build up geologic features on Earth. Yeah, and I always say it's like taking, you know, I talk about snow a lot because we get a lot of snow here in Toronto. But Me I always too. say it's like taking buckets out in a snowy day and just leaving them out for different amounts of time. The longer you leave your bucket out, the more snow you're going to get in there. Right. Um, and like, think of a bucket as a crater. The older the crater, the more little snowflakes you're going to have inside of it or around mm-hmm. it. Uh, but that method is like, it takes a lot of time because you have to count all those snowflakes or all those superimposed, um, craters. And then you might be limited by the image quality and availability in those, um, in those regions. So a method that actually my PhD supervisor, Dr. Rebecca again pioneered, uh, was trying to, um, see how rocky new craters are. The method only works for craters that are younger than about a billion years. Um, and it looks to see how rocky a crater is. So mm-hmm. I'll start you at time zero. You have a fresh uh, impact. Yep. And at the time of an impact, a lot of rocks get excavated and they sit mm-hmm. around what we call the ejecta blanket. So they just sit around the crater because of that, um, because of that initial impact. And then as time goes by, usually about a billion years and a time frame of a billion years, those rocks kept, uh, keep getting broken down further and further. So there's always the moon still getting bombarded by stuff. Mm-hmm. And if you have little impacts, they're going to come up, uh, come and uh, break apart your bigger rocks. And eventually all of that rock is going to transform into sand or regolith. Okay. And then we, co- we use the concept of um, thermal inertia that big chunks of rock can actually hold heat for a longer period of time mm-hmm. as little chunks or sand can't. And I always say it's like going to the beach um, during the day, you're, the sand and the big rocks around you are all warm. But as soon as the sun sets, the sand gets cold. You know, when you've got your feet in the yeah. sand, it gets cold. Mm-hmm. But, the, but the larger rocks can remain uh, warm for longer. So we use the same idea. The younger craters still have big chunks of rock around them that can hold heat. Mm-hmm. So therefore, when we look at nighttime temperature on the moon, they actually pop up really because they're like really red and they sh- they're very warm. Those big rocks are warm around the younger craters. And then oh, after- really? So how long how long would this um, thermal energy hold on a on a place like the moon? So th- nighttime on the moon is about two weeks. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and those really big rocks can actually hold the heat for that long. So when you wow. take measurements of temperature of nighttime, you can actually see the rocks as still being warm. And then the background, uh, which is all the sand and the regolith, is actually cold and cooled off at mm-hmm. night. So that method helps us pick all the really young craters and therefore get ages for them to tell us how often the moon has been getting bombarded in the past billion years or so. I see. You said something earlier that, that made me realize that I, I lack an understanding in something. I can go out with a telescope and look at the moon. And mm-hmm. I can see a lot of features. Mm-hmm. Um, I can see them pretty good. I can take pictures if I want to with my telescope. Um, and now, how do you get the images that you actually use to study? Do you do the same thing? Can you take just any arbitrary amateur telescope? Do you apply for telescope time? Um, what type of telescope do you even use to, to get pictures of the moon? Because this had never even occurred to me. Mm-hmm. That's a really good question. I should have explained that. So the data that we use come from the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, mm-hmm. which is a satellite orbiting the moon. It's been in orbit around the moon uh, since 2009. So we just celebrated its 10th anniversary, actually. Um, and it's been going to the near side, to the far side, um, and it's got images in the visible spectrum. So um, there's data where you can see rocks um, that are maybe even a meter in size. Uh, so that's the amount of detail that you can get from this data. And it also has different instruments. And one of them is um, the infrared uh, spectroscoper, which actually helps get temperature data. And that's that's the that's the data set that I've used. Um, but in terms of just looking up with telescopes from Earth, it wouldn't give us the resolution that we need to um to be able to get ages right. for these craters. Right, right. Um, that, are you excited for Project Artemis? Are you excited for us to be getting back to the moon, us as in humans, getting back to the moon, um, and, and maybe try to pioneer some of this research in a more direct way? I am. Um, you know, all the samples that we do have from the moon so far, they come from one era, more or less. Mm-hmm. Um, they're all aged around like three and a half to four billion years. We don't have any rocks from the from the era that I've been dating craters for, right. for example. So on a mm-hmm. personal note, I really want to tell them where to go to pick up some young, um, some rocks from young mm-hmm. craters. But in general, I'm really excited about the opportunity of going back. And this time, I think it might be slightly different than 50 years ago. 50 years ago was more like a race um, of getting to the moon and I think the science may have been slightly an afterthought, although we've got great stuff. Like we've learned so much about the moon. So much Mm -hmm. science has come out of it. But the amount of information and technology that we have now, if we take that to the moon again, um, we have a list of um, like prioritized questions that we want to answer about the moon. And, um, you know, with all the data that we have from the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter and other missions, we can see... Uh, you know, you can plan your route on the moon right now. Mm-hmm. You can see the slopes. You can see um, if your rovers uh, would be able to go up or up and down those hills or not. So the amount of information we have now is way more than we had 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's a very exciting time. Does it mean anything special to you that there will be a woman stepping foot on the moon as well as a man in 2024? Well, I think it's about time. Yes. Uh, <laughs> it's about time humans get back, right? Yes. Yes. It's about time humans get back. Uh, but I guess my pet peeve with that is that they always say there will be one woman, like one woman or there will be a woman. And I'm always like, well, why not more than one woman? You know, mm-hmm. why can't we have a crew of all women? 
I'm going there. Well, and you never know. But I'm I'm excited that we're starting to um, recognize and value the contributions of women in the field. Um, and even if it's just something on the surface to really, you know, say it out loud that we are going to make sure a woman steps on the moon. Um, I guess I, I appreciate that. Yeah. Yes. It's an exciting time. I, I wish we could do this as like a joint collaborative effort with the world. Right. That would mean a lot to me if we could do it with Russia, China, U.S., Canada, and we could have a, an international team of scientists as well as as an intergendered team of scientists. Um, I, yeah. that, that would mean a lot to me. Yeah. And I think I mean, I could be very optimistic, uh, but I think that might be the direction that we're moving towards too. all the talk with the with the Lunar Gateway. Um, mm-hmm. That's going to be another international collaboration similar to the International Space Station. Um, I know Canada's just signed up to uh, sort of build the arm again uh, for this lunar gateway. And other countries have um, Europe and um, Japan have also said that they'd be interested in contributing. And I believe that if there is going to be a lunar gateway, if we're going to have astronauts on board them or eventually to the surface, it would sort of give the opportunity for more of an international collaboration and hopefully an international team of um, astronauts to step foot on the moon again. Mm-hmm. Here, let me let me predict the future for you, okay? It's, <laughs> it's 2040, all right? It's 2040. We now have people going to and from the moon every day. It is a normal thing. Someone comes to you and says, Sarah, we need you to go to the moon to collect samples from whichever crater you choose to collect samples from. Are you going? Yes. You're going? Yeah, yes. no doubt. Does yeah. it scare you a little bit, though? Like the idea of flying to the moon, that terrifies me. Terrifies me. You know, when I, I was still a go. kid, I wouldn't get terrified at all. Um, you know, I was always like, yes. And now I say yes, and then I'm like, oh, my God. You know, recently I've started yeah. to have a lot of motion sickness just sitting, like, on mm-hmm. boats and in cars. And I'm like, oh, that's right. Yeah. That ride is going to be a little tough. Yes. Um, but. And you're sitting on top of a rocket, right? 300 feet in the air on top of a rocket. That's going to be blasted off at like 17,000 miles per hour. That's a terrifying prospect to me. Like that, it is. that blows my mind. But yeah, I would sign up. I would do it. Yeah. And I hope we can get to a time where we can do it. We're, we're in an exciting time now where we're seeing the onset of, of um, you know, people going to space, everyday people going to space, being able to buy tickets on things like the ISS or um, SpaceX or Blue Origin or all these people doing commercial space flight. And I think we will see a time where where it's going to be easy for people like you and I to hitch a ride for probably a pretty cheap amount, I imagine, in the future. I hope so. I hope by the time that my uh, hair is the same color as my teeth, I can look back and say, you know, whatever <laughs> many years ago, I used to think that was just a dream. But, you yeah. know, it's, it's our reality now. I, I really hope that it does happen in my lifetime. Yes. Now, the moon. OK, can you explain you had some important findings in the past few years um, that, that you were involved with. And it mm-hmm. was involved in this exact same vein that we were talking about, about dating craters on the moon. And, and you found some, some important um, insights into the history of craters on the moon and, in turn, the history of cratering on the Earth. Can you briefly explain the results and then, and then we'll talk more in depth about it? Sure. Um, so I guess the brief result of it was that we noticed um, a peak in the bombardment rate or an increase in the bombardment rate in the past 200, 300 million years um, mm. relative to you know the past 1 billion years. We saw yeah. that the bombardment had increased by a factor of 2 to 3, both yes. on the moon and the Earth. 
Mm -hmm. Okay. So the, the rate of impacts is, is picking up, right? Mm -hmm. And you found this on, on the moon. But one of the interesting questions, and I think one of the hard questions, at least for me on the outside looking in, is, is looking at the earth and trying to validate this idea, right? That seems like a much tougher prospect than, than looking at the moon. Um, mm -hmm. So first, I, w I don't want to jump over a question because I think it's an important question. Um, on the moon, you catalog these things. Were you doing it by eye? Were you doing it you and, and a few other people? Were, were you using machines to do it? Did you use machine learning, artificial intelligence type software? How did you classify craters and, and determine their age? Because there's so many of them, right? Yes. Uh, well, you know, just like any good grad student, the first year of my studies was spent staring at maps of the moon on my computer and, um, you know, drawing these uh, young craters and sort of the outline of their ejecta blankets so where yeah. all these big rocks are by hand on the computer. So it was all done manually mm -hmm. um, and, of course, checked by, um, by my supervisor as well to make sure that we had all the right data. But it was all done manually. We talked a little bit about machine learning and about um, automated uh, techniques. And so those are still in development by some other teams. But we're still not, um, for, for this project at least, we still needed to do it um, manually. And I guess a point that um, I should have brought up is um, that on the moon, whatever impact cratering that happens um, sort of stays on there because there's no atmosphere or tectonic right. activity. We have a mm -hmm. full... Um, record of all the impact history of the yes. moon. And that's what makes the moon so amazing about studying the past, right? Is that you, you don't have any geologic activity. Uh, it's it's interesting how rare that might be. You know, we, we used to think, I shouldn't say we as in the whole field, I'm sure some people disagreed, but I think it used to be accepted ideology that, that most rocky bodies in the, in the solar system or icy bodies in the solar system might have been... Um, geologically boring and they preserve the past but we see things happening on mars like dust storms that obscure the past we mm -hmm. we even see interesting things on pluto like the ice moving through other ice yeah that that is geological geological activity um but the moon is is a perfect preservation outside of yeah. bombardments on top of bombardments right yeah you 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 said it i always say it's a time capsule or events that have happened in our region of the solar mm -hmm. system. The Earth is great at getting rid of its history, uh, but the moon keeps everything. Yes, and it, it's it's fantastic. So that brings us to the to the Earth. How do you, so you come up with a prediction, right? The prediction is something like, it, and correct me if I, if I say this wrong, 290 million years ago, around that time, the, the rate of impacts here on the Earth, here on the moon and the Earth increased by a factor of two or three. Mm-hmm. Okay. How do you validate that hypothesis here on the Earth? Because it, we do have rivers and wind and mm -hmm. oceans and things that obscure the geology. Yeah, that's actually a really, really good question and sort of a funny story, too. So we, we got these results about the moon and we're really excited about it. And, you know, just going by rules of science, we're like, well, the same thing must have happened on Earth. But we're never going to be able to validate that because... You know, we don't have a full cratering history on on Earth. We've got all these oceans. Uh, but we said, you know, just for fun, let's go to this um, impact data set that we have for the Earth. Mm 
and let's take all the large craters. We'll only go with the ones that are larger than 20 kilometers. So they would have had a good chance of surviving because mm -hmm. of their, their size. So they would have been eroded or anything. And let's just see if we get, um, anything similar or not. And to our surprise, we did. Uh, but we had to, we had to sort of, um, think about a few challenges. So we couldn't, for everything that we do, when we talk about rates, for example, we always try to normalize by surface area. So we try to say there will be, for example, whatever many craters within um, 10 kilometers squared, mm -hmm. for example. So yeah. for the moon, it was easy because we could take the entire surface area of the moon. Right. Uh, but for the Earth, we started by um, we started by taking whatever craters we had and then um, sort of putting a buffer around that area, saying that if we have a really large 20 kilometer crater um, in northern Canada, for example, maybe anywhere up to 20 kilometers around that, we would have discovered any other large craters if they exist. Mm -hmm. So that's how yeah. we came up with our area uh, with our areas. Mm -hmm. um, and as we were submitting our results for review to to journals, we had some good feedback from some of the reviewers. And one of them said, well, what about areas that have been explored, for example, for oil? Uh, mm -hmm. But how do you know, how do you know, how do you take that into account? Um, you might not have the best um, count for area, for example. Right. And one of our colleagues came up with a really beautiful idea of um, looking at kimberlites, which are these pipes that basically uh, people would have looked in for diamonds. That's where it would have mm -hmm. hosted diamonds. And that has been searched thoroughly on Earth for it because it's because of its value. Right. Um, so we use that to sort of um, go for areas that would have had large craters that would have survived so far until now. And surprisingly, we saw very similar results for really, really large craters. Now, if we were going to take smaller size craters, we wouldn't see the same results because, as you said, a lot of it would have been eroded away uh, mm -hmm. due to snow, weathering, tectonic activity. So the smaller craters would have been eroded away, but large ones, um, are, we have a full record, actually. Yeah. Have you been to Meteor Crater in Arizona? I have, yeah. I went as part of a field school course. That is, I recommend anyone listening to go there if you have the opportunity. It is insanity. Is that is that the most impressive crater you've been to, or is there a better one? Well, that's the only one that I've that I've been to, but I mm -hmm. think it's probably one of the best preserved craters yeah. in terms of its shape. I mean, it's the classic textbook definition of a crater. Yeah, it's incredible. It's like, what did they tell me when I was there? I think they said you could play like all 16 games of NFL football on a Sunday in the bottom of the crater and you could fit over 2 million people on the rim. I think that's the number they gave me, mm -hmm. which is like it, it if you ever seen a if you ever seen a stadium, like a football stadium, uh, imagine you could fit 20 of them inside of this crater. It's it's unbelievable. Yeah. It's ginormous. Um but I I wish I could go. I think there's Crater Lake in Oregon, but I don't even know if that's a crater. I think they thought it was a crater and it turned out to not be a crater. I don't know. But that, that's besides the point. Anyway, so we have this uptick in, in, in impacts, right? What is the, the understanding for why it happens? Why do is there an, an uptick in, in Because when I think about the, the solar system, what mm -hmm. always comes to mind is the, the so-called late heavy bombardment, right? Mm -hmm. Is that what it's called? Yeah. And, and, and that was a time period, I don't know, maybe 4 billion years ago? Yeah, roughly, yeah, 3.8, 4, yeah. yeah. Where you had a, a real 
increase in the amount of 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 meteorites or asteroids hitting the earth wait mm -hmm. wait my my i should i should clear this up asteroid that's a rock in space right yes meteor that's a rock in atmosphere meteorite a rock uh, uh, an asteroid that has not burned up in the atmosphere that has hit the ground yes is that right yeah so what is it called on the moon then uh is it would it be a meteorite always yeah because i mean there's no atmosphere for it to burn right. through yeah okay look we're solving yeah. problems we're solving problems already. <laughs> okay so what is the cause for this then what is the the theoretical underpinning i love saying that theoretical underpinning i don't use it enough i should want anyway yeah, well, we've got we've got the asteroid belt where, you know, a lot of the asteroids are living in uh -huh. um, and sometimes they leave their orbit. And because of the sun's gravity, they get pulled towards the sun and we're sort of in between their way, um, you know, uh -huh. on their way to the sun. The Earth could get impacted by them as well. Yes. Um, and some of that is very normal. Um, but this this increase um, bombardment rate, we're actually we're still working to figure out exactly what would have caused it. But a main idea that we have is that um, sometimes these asteroids live in families. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a whole bunch of them that live very closely. Yeah. And sometimes these asteroid families break up. Uh, so there's a lot of them coming towards the sun mm -hmm. at the same time. And the reason that they usually um, break up is due to the sun's energy as well. So asteroids sometimes take the energy from the sun mm -hmm. and release it. And it sort of gives them this like jumping movement uh, mm -hmm. as they're moving around. So they get energy and they release that energy. Um, and sometimes that pushes them outside of their regular orbit around the sun. And therefore they start to come towards the sun. And then we see their footprint on the moon and the earth and probably other planets in the inner solar system as well. I see. Do you also have collisions happening? In, in the asteroid belt that, that throw tend to throw material our direction? Yeah, that could happen yeah. too. So we ha you have all of them that are moving around and sometimes they collide to one another. So anything that would push them outside of their regular orbit. Mm -hmm. I see. So this, you know, this finding has big implications on us as human beings and on the, the planet itself. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, we're, every time there's an asteroid that comes within like 7 million miles of us, the news is covering it. People are fascinated with the idea of apocalypse, with the <laughs> idea of asteroid. I actually had a guy, uh, Dr. John Hoops, on here a couple weeks ago, and he's a pseudo-archaeology expert on the Mayans, on, on doomsday predictions and stuff. And, and this is a very common idea in pseudoscience or in, in science fiction, asteroid impacts that, that kill you. Humans seem to be intently fascinated with that topic. Um, did, you, did you feel a lot of that fascination when you were publishing? Were people reaching out to you like, Sarah, is the is the world going to end? Is there asteroids coming at us? What does this mean? What are the implications? Did you get a lot of that? Well, yeah, similar to that. A lot of it is, well, you know, we've seen this increase. Now, has that died off? Are we still in that right. peak? Are we still getting bombarded more? And, you know, I can't answer that because uh, the resolution of our data doesn't allow us to see if it was like a peak or if it was a spike or if it's right. still going on. All we know is... Um, what we know that it's just been an increase in the past mm -hmm. few hundred um, million years. Um, the only thing that I can say, I guess, is that um, if there are large enough asteroid impacts, you know, even if they're not large enough to uh, wipe us off, actually, or like wipe us out of the planet, 
and they will cause a lot of changes um, geologically into the atmosphere of the Earth as well. Um, and if going back to 300 million years ago, um, just looking at some of the events that have happened on Earth as well, you know, going from single cell to multi-cell or um, some of the extinction events that have yes. happened. It's mm-hmm. not it's not a cause and effect thing, but it's more like what other changes, what, what changes would it have caused on Earth um, to lead to those other evolutionary changes or extinctions? I see. Now, we can move on. We can leave the moon behind, okay? Oh, like no. we did, like we did fifty years ago. Okay, and, I hope and, we go back. <laughs> yes, we'll come back sometime. But I want to talk about space matters. Okay, mm-hmm. this is a, a something that that you are pioneering. You're the head. Is that the proper term? Head, head of space uh, matters. Yeah, I'm the lead for space. Lead. Matters. That's the word yes. I'm looking for. Lead. Yes. Okay. <laughs> can you briefly describe what it is? Sure. So. um uh, it actually started with uh, Dr. Gordon Zinsky and Dr. Marianne Meter um, out of Western University and out of the Canadian Association of Science Centers. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was this idea of trying to um, showcase all the contributions that Canada is making uh, in the space field, trying to take space from coast to coast in Canada, but also using space as a way to motivate youth um, to get engaged in the STEM field and the science, technology, education, and math field. You know, space is such an easy hook to get kids interested um, into these fields. So trying to come up with um, activities and outreach events for them, but also providing tools for teachers and educators so that they mm-hmm. can use that in their classrooms as well. Yeah. Um, well- one of the interesting things I find, which is why I find this organization to be, you know, incredibly incredible, incredibly incredible, mm-hmm. um, is that, uh, you know, the rates of people being interested in space and physics when they're young are so high. Like mm-hmm. if, you, if you ever do outreach, if you're a scientist out there and you do outreach um, or like even if you talk to your nieces and nephews, like tell them a space fact. They're so receptive. But if you ever do outreach, you notice something in kids and it's that they are so easily hooked. To, to physics and astronomy like so yeah. easily hooked because you know we were talking about the moon earlier when you're a kid you're you're looking up you're trying to explain the world around you the world around you generally is what's happening in the sky at nighttime um you notice all this cool stuff happening mm-hmm. you can't explain any of it but you want to understand it um you are innately interested in doing that for some reason though there's this 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 whatever it is roadblock that prevents tons of people from pursuing it and in part of the roadblock, at least as I see it and as some surveys tend to show, is that people, as they grow older, have no basis of understanding what it means to actually be an astronomer or a physicist. And not only what it means to be one, but how you become one is like a complete – like in terms of like Google searches, one of the most common Google searches with the keyword ast- astronomy is like what do people who study astronomy do? Mm-hmm. Like what job do you have? How do you make money? Um, and I notice it like when I do – when I was an under an undergraduate and I would do like these family weekend type events where families would come in and bring their, their kids and see if they want to come to the school. And their kids would want to study astronomy and physics and the, the families would be like confused. Like what are you, you going to do? Like what do you do with that degree that seems like a, a useless degree? Because they simply mm-hmm. don't understand how much astronomy and physics there is in their culture. And so I th- – are you trying to address that problem? Is that is that part of the, the goal? Um, I guess sort of. So we're not trying to 
Uh, I mean, we do showcase faces of space, which we do try to show some of the leading uh, figures in space, whether it be teachers, astronauts, mm-hmm. engineers. So we are trying to showcase some of the jobs that do come out of studying, you know, astronomy, space, engineering or related fields. Yeah. But also um, by showcasing um, the ways that you use space in your daily life, you know, from yeah. from your cell phone, from checking the weather app, um, mm-hmm. anything that you do that you really cannot have a day without space anymore, um, you know, your running shoes, anything like that. So just trying to say all of the things, yes. all of the spinoffs of space and highlighting that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think it's really effective. And going back to your point of, you know, people not being sure what astronomers really do or what type of jobs there are. Um, you know, even when I was um, when I was in high school and I was trying to figure out what to do, I, I got similar sort of comments too of like, well, there's not that many jobs if you go into mm-hmm. an astronomy degree. And, you know, if you think about, astronomy and academia as a professor yes that might be true that like you don't have as many jobs as some other traditional fields yeah. but there's so many other things that you can do there's so many skills that you develop uh, by studying astronomy space physics that you can then apply to other jobs like critical thinking programming yeah. skills mm-hmm. uh, research skills and all of that and another thing that i usually tell people too is that you don't even need to do astronomy or space studies as a profession you know, you can yes. you can do anything and be an amateur astronomer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can be an artist. That it, you don't need to pick one field or another. It's just cultivating that culture of interest in space and astronomy, um, and having events where people can go to learn about uh, these things casually, like just like they would go to like an art gallery or a museum. Yeah, there's this huge influx of citizen science happening now, mm-hmm. and it. it for me, what it shows is that the people, when they were kids, who had the interest in science, in astronomy, in physics, in astrophysics, that interest didn't go away. It They just didn't pursue it, right? You have, like, insane numbers of people cataloging, uh, cataloging galaxies or asteroids or, or impact craters or whatever it is. You have tons of people. In fact, I was talking with... Um, Someone who's a, an expert in the world of pseudo or citizen science of developing, um, you know, these sorts of citizen science projects, and they were telling me that there's there's even people that do such a good job, and they do it so often, and they're so involved in the project that the the physicists and the astronomers literally know them by name. It's like they get involved in the research accidentally just by being so interested in it. Because they're cataloging, you know, hundreds of galaxies or mm-hmm. thousands or tens of thousands of galaxies. And the, the researcher's like, this person's doing more than we are. Like, we, we need to talk to this person. They, they clearly are in, invested in this just as much as we are. Um, so it, it, it is like a whole new avenue. And you mentioned something else interesting. Uh, there's I've been looking at machine learning jobs lately. Mm-hmm. It's like I'm fantasizing about having a real job with real money. You know, I'm like sitting back and I'm like, man, if only I didn't get a PhD stipend and I could, get, you know, re- and I could get paid a living wage. Um, and I, I've been looking at these jobs and, and it, one thing you'll notice, people listening, is that when you look at a job description, it you will always find that one of the requirements is a BS, not just in computer science, not just in mathematics, but it always says physical sciences too. And that's because this this field, like you said, it prepares you to do so many things it prepares you to think critically and after all that's what you need to do any job 
no job you're going to start and, and immediately know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but what helps is if you have a dedication and if you have critical thinking skills to get you there. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. Yeah. And just quickly going mm-hmm. back to the citizen scientist project, I think it's, it's such a great idea because if, if you have an interest, um, you know, you're doing something out of your own interest, you're learning, but you're also, um, participating in real life, um, science projects and science mm-hmm. research and the work that you're doing is actually contributing to discovering something new. And, um, you know, I, I sometimes do different, completely different projects that have nothing to do with space, like about plants and leaves right. and, you know, something completely mm-hmm. different, but it's just, it's just so interesting to see what other people are doing and sort of, um, contribute to it a little bit. Yeah, I, I agree a hundred percent. What are the things you mentioned running shoes earlier and we mm-hmm. just kind of, you know, crept past it, but I assume you were mentioning the fact that, that, you know, shoes like that were first developed for space travel for space flight for space operations um what are you what are like your favorite talking points when you talk about the way space has impacted humanity what are your favorite things where you're like this wouldn't exist without space travel this wouldn't exist without this the canadians in space this wouldn't exist and this is why space matters what are your favorites um i think Currently, one of the things that I would talk about the most would come down to everything that you can find on your cell phone. Oh, yeah. Because everyone's so attached to their cell phone. Mm-hmm. And anything that you do, you know, you want to find locations, you want to get your Uber Eats, yeah. you know, that's that's all because of space. That's all the mm-hmm. satellites that we have. You want to check the weather to see, like, how you should dress before you leave home. Mm-hmm. You want to take a selfie, the cameras that were invented. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it all comes from making like big CCD cameras, for example. So everything that fits in the palm of your hand, um, just in your cell phone is all space. And I guess one of the other things like running shoes, um, resist- yeah. like scratch resistant sunglasses, mm-hmm. anything that you use on the daily basis. Yep. Um, a lot of them are like, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, insulation is an interesting one to me. Yeah, right, like like actually good insulation that actually works. Um, yeah, there's a reason that that buildings now can be built with like, you know, wood paneling as opposed to brick. Yeah, and um, you know that's topical for us living where we live. It's, it gets incredibly cold in the winter, <laughs> right? So we need good insulation, and and that was first pioneered because space is cold. So yep. they needed to develop a way to keep keep um, keep the spacecraft warm. Yeah. And it's it's all around us every day. And do you think that do you see that people don't realize that? Um, yeah, I think it's very easy to take these things um, for granted or just imagine that they've just been there or that they would have been invented regardless. And that might be true that, you know, eventually they would have been invented. But to the quality um, maybe that we have today, maybe not if we didn't mm-hmm. have to prepare for the coldness of space, for example, Um, maybe not. And it's just things that we don't talk about. And I'm sure outside of my space field, there's so many things that I take for granted that I don't think about twice. Um, and you know, if, if it was between picking space and something else that I had not much of an interest in, then I would Mm -hmm. probably not give it a, give it a second thought. But I think that's, that's probably what we're trying to do with space matters is just, to also raise awareness about all the stuff that we do do use on the daily um, from space yes. technology. Yeah, and I, I think that needs to be promoted more, which is why I love what you're doing, because that helps with future space funding. 
if you can convince people, people have this idea that, that space travel or science in general is a, a sunk cost in the sense that y you're paying for discovery, but the discovery doesn't actually advance mm -hmm. civilization because it's not engineering. It's not like computer science. You're not feeding people. You're not putting clothes on people. But I try to convince people, but there is an indirect an, an indirect way in which this benefits you. And, you know, d explaining to people about all of these primitive technologies at the time that were developed at a place like N NASA or, or CSA or somewhere like that and have now become such an integral part of mm -hmm. who we are and where we live. I love flat earthers that use cell phones. Those are my favorite, <laughs> right? Those are my absolute favorite. I don't know. I encounter too many flat earthers, I think. I can just encounter one yesterday, actually. Um, because of my presence on the internet, I, I get emails from flat earthers all the time. And it amazes me that these people can reap the benefits of direct benefits from spaceflight, not realizing, um, not realizing it. And so I think the education is important to also to protect funding. Do you think that, that ignorance on the part of, of a population, not realizing the benefit of science can hurt the, the funding of the science? Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily um, call it ignorance, maybe, but just, uh, you know, everyone's so busy with with their daily lives and everyone's dealing with so many problems and people have different priorities. Yeah. Um, and it's true that it's not talked about often enough. Uh, and sometimes maybe rightfully so uh, people have so much other things to deal with. But I definitely think that talking about it, uh, you know, more openly. And I, that's one of the reasons that I do science communication. And I think that it should be appreciated more um, globally is that, um, you know, we need we need to get out there and and talk about our research and what we're doing with the broader community. Um, you know, we're part of that mm -hmm. community and talking about what we do. Um, if I'm if I'm excited about it and interested about it, talking about it might interest someone else, might excite someone else. It might exactly. not change their priorities yes. and values, but we're still having uh, we're still having that conversation and definitely highlighting all the spinoffs. I can agree that, you know, not everybody loves the idea of going to the moon and spending so much money going there. Mm -hmm. I can understand and appreciate that. But talking about all the other benefits that we get from exploring space, uh, they might be able to, you know, open up some new avenues for discussions um, to, to definitely like further interest more people in it. And I always mm -hmm. say that it's not even about, you know, um, the technologies that come off from it, like going back to 50 years ago when there was the whole Apollo era. Um, so many other, so many kids that were watching that happen became interested in, um, in the STEM fields again, in the science, mm -hmm. technology, education, math. We got so many more engineers, scientists, so many higher degrees that came after that because of that peak interest. So showing what we can do, pushing our boundaries and doing something new will really motivate the next generation as well. And I think yeah. that's the direction that we want to go in and like mm -hmm. bringing in more innovation um, and more value into the field is just by, by doing something new and exciting every day. Yes. I always try to look at my own experience. And I realized that when I was in elementary school, when I was in middle school, when I was in high school, there was no one at all that talked to me about, you know, we didn't have a, I didn't even have a computer science course in my high school. Like that, that wasn't a thing. It didn't exist. Um, there wasn't an astronomy course outside of like a half of a half of a semester mm -hmm. course where they talked like, here are the 
you know, eight planets, might have been nine planets. At the nine time. Yeah. <laughs> back then. Um, yeah. But, you know, um, so for me, I was never exposed to it. And because I was never exposed to it, I didn't see value in it. I don't, I don't know how I ended up even doing what I do, but I didn't find the value in it. At least it wasn't, you know, taught to me that this thing has value. So when you do outreach, do you try to, to target the communities, the younger communities and show them value? Or do you try to retrain community, older communities and say, um, look, there is value and here's the value. Or do you try to do a mix of both? I think we try to do a mix of both, and I definitely value doing the mix of both. Mm-hmm. Um, because even even to get to those um, outreach events for youth, unless it's done at a school or a camp, um, actually, unless it's done at a school, it's usually the adults that have to bring their kids to those events. Yeah. Um, and I think I think it's always more fun when everyone's doing it together and they're both mm-hmm. involved and learning. And you see, you definitely see the value that they're they're able to go off, you know, they've learned something, but it's now created so many other questions that they get to go out there and explore together. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in reaching the younger, uh, younger audience, we try to sort of spark that interest. And in um, reaching the older population, well, like the adult population, um, you know, maybe this was something that they were briefly interested in as a kid, but never yeah. had exposure to after mm-hmm. um, and just making that more accessible and available to them. Yeah, I um, I think it's so interesting when I'm doing outreach and like a family comes up to me and I can tell the kids don't care. They're like, dude, I don't care about the exoplanets <laughs> or whatever you're talking about. Like, I'm just here for the free things you hand out and the candy, whatever. And my mom drug me here. Um, but then the parents are like intently interested in everything I'm saying. And they're like making the kids like, listen, Johnny, I need you to stay there and shut up because I'm interested in this. I love when that happens. I love in that not because I like disinterested kids, okay, but but because I love seeing people who are older who have a passion for it and are still trying to mm-hmm. not directly pursue it as a career, but but they they're keeping it alive because I also think that has good intentions on the children they're raising. You know, there there's statistics that show that if you are in a household with no supportive parents or teachers at your school, um in the STEM fields, then your chances of going to the STEM fields are like, I don't know, 15%. I think that the, the, this was particularly done on, on young women, actually, Uh, they asked them questions like, are you interested in STEM? Do you see STEM as a career choice? And if they have no support from their teachers, parents, no one to be a role model for them, the rate of saying, yes, I want to pursue it is like 15%. But if you have supportive parents and a teacher, the rate of saying yes is almost 50% of girls say yes. Um, so I don't know, the the study hasn't been done on, on men, on boys, and probably because it was a study meant to address the, the gender gap in STEM. But mm-hmm. but it, it's, it's speaks to the point that um, you need role models. And, and I'm glad that you're trying to be that. And your organization is trying to be that. Yeah, definitely. And I see this in our, uh, so we have a space explorers camp that we run out of London and Richmond Hill, Ontario in Canada. And um, I was at the Richmond Hill location this summer. And a lot of the times, you know, first day of camp, we see these kids come up. Some of them have like their nice spacey shirts on. Mm -hmm. Um, And usually like I ask them on the first day, I'm like, so are you a big space fan? And some of them are like, yeah. And some of the other ones, like, you know, their parents are like, well, you know, actually, I used to love space as a kid. <laughs> yeah. Um, so now I've like sort of forced my kid to come to this camp. Mm-hmm. 
but it's it's just great to see that you know something that you've had an interest in as a kid but you didn't have the opportunities to explore them any further you're providing those opportunities for your kids now yeah. um and even though they might not you know they might not become a space fan by the end of the week at least you've exposed them to what else is out there and you're sort of i'm sure you would you know your kids would go home and then talk about you, you, if you're already interested in space, you would probably like, right. pull more questions like, what did yeah. you do today? What did you mm-hmm. learn today? And it just provides more more conversations around it too. Yes. I also think there's something good about like admitting that you like something but but not wanting to pursue it as a career. Like I don't think there's any harm in that, right? Um, as a parent, if, if you liked astronomy as a kid, um, it's okay that you didn't pursue it as a career, but that you kept the passion alive. And I like that. So as an example, you know, I like football. I like American football. I, I don't want to be in the NFL. I don't want the brain trauma. You know, I don't want that sort of, st- but I, I love watching it. Um, and so I, I look at parents the same way and, and, and I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah, definitely. Like, I mean, you don't have to become an astronomer or a space scientist or an engineer, mm-hmm. but as long as, uh, you know, you're open to having that conversation and yeah. to um, sort of providing that support for for your child or your neighbor or your friend that might be interested in it. Um, I mean, that's that's all that we want ambassadors for, um, you know, cultivating that interest in science and engineering. Yeah. So an, another demographic of people that that I'm really connected with is is poor people. OK, I, I am very interested in, in educating the poorer communities, the more impoverished communities and where I'm around in America. Because I grew up in one and I see, and the statistics support this, that when you grow up in a, in a poor community with poor education system, your, your belief in science or your rate of science denial or your belief that science is even useful um, goes way down. Like you, you don't think that it's a useful thing. It, it, these surveys have been done specifically with like they would ask people questions about NASA, like, do you think NASA is a good way to spend money? And in wealthy communities or in educated communities, it's like 80-some percent of people say yes. In impoverished communities, it's like less than 60 say yes. So you have an almost 50-50 split where where 50% of people don't even think it's a good endeavor to be chasing at all, um, mm-hmm. let alone funding cuts. You know, some people think completely wiping the funding out and, and putting it towards more useful mm-hmm. stuff. So do you put an effort into trying to attack the, impo- you know, you're around Toronto mm-hmm. naturally, as with any big metropolitan area, there's a lot of poverty there. Um, do you try to attack that problem? And it, I, I shouldn't say that because that is a yes or no question. I should say, is it a problem that's even possible to attack other than fixing the education system? Um, I think it's important to be aware of it. And what I like is to, um, you know, I really like the term, um, like underprivileged communities. Cause I mm-hmm. think, I think it's really important to step back and look at the privileges that we have. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, being able to have access to clean water and food. Um, and if, if I have access to those and if I can have a roof above my head and I don't, you know, if I have all of those, then I have the chance to stop and think about, other issues like Mm -hmm. NASA and going to the moon and whatever. But if I'm struggling to provide food for my family, um, you know, for the night of, then my, my priorities are going to lie somewhere else. Um, and, and I think, I think it's extremely important. I'm, I'm, um, I'm a big supporter of 
having science be more uh, more accessible. I don't think that it needs to be for because uh, even right now, like going to university, you know, it's just it's a it's for the privileged, basically, whether mm-hmm. or not we want to admit it. Oh yeah, um, and yeah, I yeah, think. Yeah. I think having, you know, I'm a big believer that science needs to be more accessible um, and it needs to be available to everybody, not just a certain group of people. Mm-hmm. Um, now, how do we go about changing that? I think it's sort of a one step at a time thing. Um, you know, for us, for example, with Space Matters, uh, we provide classroom workshops and um, we try to do that. You know, it's open and free for everybody. So if if there's mm-hmm. a request from, um, you know, the greater Toronto area or around London, then one of us would happily go into a classroom and run a workshop free of charge um, to sort of even for that one hour to bring that excitement into that classroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of our teacher training program, uh, most of the workshops that we do provide, we do try to do it so that um, they can do it with uh, very low cost material. Mm-hmm. So, we, yeah. you know, we understand that laptops and iPads and all of that is not available in all schools. Um, so I think it's really, really important to um, to reach those communities and uh, a great community in uh, in Toronto, actually, that uh, is doing a fantastic job of that is uh, called Visions of Science. So they're specifically targeting the underprivileged groups and providing these opportunities for them in a really beautiful way. Um, and I think it's just a matter of putting our resources, uh, you know, all the organizations yeah. and industries, mm-hmm. putting resources into providing that equal opportunity for everybody yeah 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 what like see i um i always get you know a little um a little angry i'll say not angry is not the word but a little bitter because i feel like certain communities aren't touched um an example is like one community that people don't even realize doesn't excel in science is uh children of single mothers children of single mothers complete like on average three years less school than people with two parent households so for every two parent household kid that gets a bachelor's degree one of single parent household kid is dropping out of his associate's degree in the first year um you know that sort of thing and there's a a lot of communities like that 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 aren't being touched or addressed or you know and you you know you said something that's very interesting and it's like you know uh education is for the privileged that is very true 14 only 14 percent of kids in ph in the top 200 phd programs for physical sciences in the country are from low income households 14% yeah. that's that's a and that's for the us uh, maybe canada is different um i don't know but you know you, you have a great ted talk okay and your ted talk is the title is give it to me uh um, invisible barriers to exploring outer space yes boom good 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 mm-hmm. uh good title so the TED Talk is about your experience um, being a, a woman coming up in science. And and every time I talk about this, I get such polarized comments. Like I talked about this with Natalie Willette, okay? Um, and and so in this, I want to to try to bring up some of the, the things that people always throw at me. Like, oh, women in science, you're not considering this and that and this and this and this and this. And, this. and, and so one of the statistics that I wanted to mention is that um, – because I don't know where I stand. I'm a white dude. I'm not a woman. I, I don't. I know a lot of women in science. They they don't come to me and and ever tell me that they've had a hard time. But then again, I I would I don't go to them and tell them I've had a hard time being from a sin. I don't go like I have a. I'm from a single mother. This has been a really hard journey for. Me. I don't do that. So I wouldn't expect them to do that to me either. 
Um, obviously, your TED talk was given um, to try to illuminate that. You weren't like complaining, um, which I imagine some people like to say you are. I talked to Priyanata Rajan, Dr. Priyanata. She's a famous, very famous cosmologist, and um, I think she's a best-selling author as well. And she was talking about that, about how like she struggled as a woman in India um, going up through the ranks of science, but she would she didn't, she doesn't like to talk about it because it feels like she's complaining and she doesn't want anyone to think she's complaining and and I, I could sympathize with that in some ways as you know people tend not to talk about their struggles a lot um, but it's important to talk about them that's not saying it's not important to talk about them so for all the YouTube commenters um, maybe that but one of the statistics that I, I I found was that there's this thing called the global gender index which I had never heard of okay and it's like a measure of how equal a country is. So it's normalized to be between zero and one. Zero is not equal at all, which thankfully there's no countries in the world with a zero mm. where men completely dominate women in every facet. Uh, I don't even know what that would look like other than just men existing in the country. Um, and then a, a equality rating of one, which means everything is completely equal. And um, Canada, interestingly, is very high on the list, like very towards the top. It's like 0.8 or something which is up there with like Norway and Finland and some of the Northern European countries that everyone looks at as like an oasis for good reasons. They're beautiful places. Um, and America's like 0.7 or something. It's lower than Canada, but it's not at the bottom. Uh, but one of the interesting statistics that I want to get your opinion on is that the countries that tend to be towards the bottom, countries like Pakistan, Yemen, Middle East countries um, that are very oppressive to women and and some of those countries have the highest rates of women in science. Mm -hmm. And countries with the lower gender indexes tend to have lower rates of women getting into science. So, you know, proponents of of this I or of this idea say, well, look, look at the statistics. When, when women have a chance, which a choice, they tend not to go into science. Um, what do you say ab about that? That's a really good question, and I don't know if I can really um, comment on it because, like, I'm, yeah. I don't know much, much about it in terms of, you know, I would need to read up yes. more about it. And but I'm not it trying to true. put you on the spot. No, no, I'm not it's a good to... conversation point, and it's actually interesting. So, um, I was born in Iran, and then I immigrated to Canada with my family when I was in high school, um, and it's true that. Over there, we, it was never a conversation of, you know, boys are good in math and science mm -hmm. and girls are in. Like, that, that conversation didn't even exist. It was not even a thing. Yeah. Um, whereas here, like, I felt it more in high school. And or may, may, I don't know if that was dependent on my age or the situation I was in. Um, but but it's I've, I've heard that before, and it's definitely interesting. And I, I can't quite understand why in why it's so different in some of the first world countries um why we're still having those issues um but yeah i mean you know i always say i want to go back and do a phd in social science and like attack some of these questions and answers mm -hmm. and um but yeah that's, that's yeah definitely I, they're, they're they're interesting questions and you know the thing is nothing happens in a vacuum in social science right it, you can't like isolate variables and problems and and so it's hard to look at these statistics and take them verbatim because mm -hmm. different circumstances are happening in every single country. But the authors of these things put forth the idea that um, in, in the countries like the Middle East countries, the highest paying jobs are tech jobs. The highest paying jobs are, are 
jobs that require knowledge, STEM knowledge, essentially. Mm -hmm. And so women tend to pursue them even if they don't like them, which is actually the opposite problem of the problem that maybe exists in places like the United States where um, there could be factors that, that convince you not to pursue something you like, even if you like it. Um, mm -hmm. What factors were it for you that you felt like were hurdles getting into or progressing through your career in science? Yeah, and uh, I guess briefly before I get into that too, is that, um, you know, it's true that some people do think it sounds like complaining, but to me, I feel like um, talking about it is really important, especially for the next generation, as well mm -hmm. as other people that are facing similar situations, yes. because it's so easy to feel like, oh, this is only happening to me. Oh, maybe yes. there's something wrong with me. Uh, um, yes. And the more we talk about it, the more you're like, oh, okay, it's not me. Yes. Um, it's it's the society and it's just like how it's been, how, how things are. So it's, um, that, that's the reason that I talk about it. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I've, I've been very lucky to come from a very supportive family mm -hmm. where they've always said, you know, pursue your dreams, do whatever you want to do. You know, we've immigrated here to a land where you can study whatever you want to study, be whoever yeah. you want to be, be support you, whatever, um, field you pick. Um, but even like from high school, for example, if, like I think you mentioned too, if, if I would talk to anyone about my interest, it was almost immediately shut down. It's always like, well, are you sure that's what you want to study? There mm -hmm. aren't too many jobs in it. You know, why don't you pick something like nursing? So comments like that. Yeah. Um, but and I, and I recently learned the word for it is like microaggressions, like these little comments and like things that are like mm -hmm. surface cuts, but eventually they really start to get yeah. to you. Now, do you think um, that, do you think that that happens for, for, like any competitive field though because i i wonder this a lot um i wonder like if i were to go to my high school counselor and be like listen man we're not gonna do the college thing because i i'm gonna go play in the nba like i'm gonna be wouldn't it be his natural inclination to say to me like hey brendan is that a good move there's not a lot of prospects in the nba you're only five foot eleven so let's calm down um you know that sort of thing like do you, do you think that that is a natural inclination of people, like their their response when you say you want to do something hard, when you say you want to do something that, that seems on the surface like it would be unlikely? Um, or do you feel like that this was a particular um, comment that you got more because you were a female as opposed to a male? Um, well, that question in particular, I don't think that it was targeted at me because of my, uh, mm -hmm. my gender or sex, but rather, yeah, I mean, if. I would understand it if I would say I want to become an astronaut, which is something that I did say at some point. And it's like, well, that's really hard. Mm -hmm. And then providing guidance of, well, you know, these are all the fields that could lead into you becoming an astronaut, for example. Yeah. Um, if you want to pick astronomy or if you want to pick space, you know, your job options in that very specific field might be very low or like, you know, you have to excel in like math and physics and whatever. Yeah. But here are some other things that you can do with this sort of a degree. So I don't think mm -hmm. particularly discouraging someone from a field that's um, that's hard is necessarily positive, but rather, you know, I'm all for giving that information. I wish, yeah. Yeah. you know, that, you know, there's only one faculty position in whatever many years in that mm -hmm. field. Um, but here are some alternatives that you can yeah. do with a degree, mm -hmm. um, in space science, for example. Yeah. That, see, that's, that's, that's a, a fantastic point. And, you know, that didn't exist in my school. Like if I were to go to someone and say, Hey, I want to be a f astrophysicist. 
No one would be like, great, here's a ton of resources to help you in your career. No one would do that. Mm-hmm. Um, in college, they would do that because naturally I'm in the department full of people who have done it before. Um, yeah. But in high school, that would never happen. Like people would never, ever, ever do that. And and I should say, um, because I don't want this to be um, like mistaken by you in any way, uh, I was not calling your TED Talk complaining. I hope you didn't. No, no. Okay. I hope absolutely you didn't take not. it that way. No, because no, if you absolutely. if you listen to the show ever, like I am, I always try to to tell my story in hopes of helping other people. Um, I always try to tell the intricacies of my own life. Of of we we won't get into it, but but you know because I do get messages from people that are like Brendan, I'm going through this exact same thing right now. I appreciate you talking about that and being open about that, and it helps me and it makes me realize I'm not alone. And so for that. There probably is some girl sitting out there who's 13 years old and whatever grade you're in at 13 years old. I don't remember. Eighth, maybe. And um, who's thinking, man, I want to be an astrophysicist, but I don't know if I can do it. And then they see someone like you. And no one can deny that that helps. If someone denies that that helps, then then they're they're being blind to the, the reality of the world. Um, because that undoubtedly helps to have a role model at something, you know, you You'd be very hard-pressed to find someone who's super successful at a given thing who didn't get inspiration from someone before them, yeah. okay? Um, that's why ins- that's why kids with supportive parents do this more because if they say, hey, mom, I want to be a computer scientist, and mom says, "Don't, you're not going to be a computer scientist. Coding isn't for you. You don't know how to code. You know, we don't even have a computer. We don't have internet. What are you talking about? Um, whereas if the mom says, oh, good, I'm going to go buy a computer tomorrow, and we're going to get you set up, and we're going to start you know, teaching you how to to use code to write code there's this if you can't see a clear difference in that as as a person as a human being then then you're helpless i must say um because there's a very clear difference i think and and i think that your ted talk illuminates that 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 sometimes you find yourself in a position as a woman um where you you look around i'm in the, i'm in the situation right now where you look around like you're in a committee or you're in a class or whatever and there's not a single other woman around you like there's not a single one. There's not a professor that's a woman. And, and, and there's something important about um, identifying with the group. You know, it's sometimes it's, I think it's maybe not even, correct me if I'm wrong, but sometimes it's not even that you feel like you're being like put down or, or pushed out. But sometimes it's like a lack of being able to just identify with the people around you on something like a gender that you, that, you know, like being a woman and, and connecting with other women. Um, maybe that maybe that has something to do with it that you just want to feel like you're a member of the group and that your group can succeed in this space and and if your group's not represented or not there in the space then it can be disheartening i don't know definitely i think i think representation matters it's really important to be Mm -hmm. able to see someone um that looks like you that connects with you and just having a more diverse team uh you know if i'm on a committee or if i'm doing research I don't want to be thought of as like the only colored woman on the team. Like I'm there because I'm good at the research that I do. It's be- mm-hmm. like I'm there because of my work and that's what I'm valued for. Right. But then some of the things that might come into making that place more accessible for me or more comfortable for me, those are things that may have not been considered before because well, we've never had anyone else like me in that position before, for right. example. You know, one of the comments that like I still think of when I first started my master's was like getting a comment like, well, do you want to work in the lab with like with those nails? Like what's wrong mm-hmm. with having 
you know, slightly longer nails that have nail polish on them. Like, right. of course, I can still work in the lab. Like, that's mm-hmm. not a problem at all. Yeah. Um, you know, comments like that that are really unnecessary that only come along with having uh, a more diverse team. Like, that's that shouldn't be the first time that has yes. happened and there's nothing right. wrong with it. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I was recently on a panel and it's become like the like I always say representation matters and it's just become so clear for me after that panel. Um, I was on a panel talking about uh, Canada's future on the moon and everything. And a very famous journalist was on the panel as well. And then afterwards, we had like a little bit of a mingling with the audience. And um, a girl who was in high school came up to me and she was like, so like, what kind of courses did you take when you were in high school? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what kind of courses do you think I should be taking? So I had a little chat with her trying to see what she was interested in. Yeah. She said she's not sure if it's like astronomy in space or not. And I said, well, these are the courses that I took, but you know, you don't, you don't have to go to that field. Also, you know, when you go to university or college, you can also change your mind. You can change your field. Mm-hmm. You know, just had a brief conversation. And then, um, at the end of the night, that journalist came up to me and he's like, you know, I heard my daughter asking you some questions. And it's funny because I'm an astrophysicist by training as well. That's my university degree. Mm-hmm. And she never asked me that question before. Mm. And it was just, it was so surprising for him and for me too. I didn't know that was his daughter that, you know, yeah. it's the same field. She could have easily asked her dad. I mean, she's her dad every day. She could have asked him those questions, but she probably felt more of a connection with me on like, I was younger as a woman and to, to have that conversation, that's why it's so important to have a diverse range of people, um, you know, in any workplace. Yeah. 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 I, I, I agree. You know, we all identify with groups, right? We all get encouragement from our group. Um, whatever it is that, that binds you to other people, it doesn't have to be color. It doesn't have to be gender. It could be literally anything. It'd be like a love for, yeah, space. Exactly. That's how this community is born. But um, you know, it, it, it helps to see like, um, you know, an example is like when I'm graduating, uh, when you're graduating from, so like I'm graduating from high school and I'm trying to type in keywords into Google, like, um, how does someone from, you know, my school or a bad school in central Pennsylvania or whatever, get into a university, you know, you're inherently realizing that you're in a group. The group is you're in a bad school. You're in a shitty school from central pennsylvania how do you get into the other group which is the college mm-hmm. um and i could imagine maybe someone in your situation was thinking the same thing like how does a, a colored woman get into a phd program at you know x school or or x university um and you're trying to think that like do i have to is there some special thing i have to do um, do people get in often you know what etc etc um which brings me back to my previous point of like sometimes education or certain fields are so privileged like we should never Mm -hmm. have to you know google those terms like it shouldn't be just for a certain type of people we shouldn't have to break into other groups but Mm -hmm. unfortunately that's our reality yes yes Uh uh-huh a hundred percent yes um well if there's anything else that you'd like to say, I know you have to get going here in a few minutes. Um, if, if you want to plug where people can find you, where people can, can find Space Matters, where people can learn more about you, please do. Sure. Um, you can find us um, at Space Matters CA on all social media. So on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, on our website. Um, that's talking about 
why space matters in Canada and highlighting Canada's contribution, some of the activities that we do here in Canada. Um, as well, I am a, a science communicator and advocate for women in STEM, equity, diversity, inclusion. You can also find me on all social media under SciCom Sarah um, or visit my website, sarahmazri.com. Yes, great. Well, I'm sure people will check you out. I hope they do. I encourage them to. Um, you're a fascinating person to talk to. I appreciate your insights on everything. I, I don't know everything. No one knows everything, right? Yeah. That's why I like to have conversations with all sorts of different people from all sorts of different fields and, and try to understand more about the world that I occupy. So I appreciate you being here. And, and people, thank you for listening. We're out.